This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The National Cabinet meets this afternoon with the Prime Minister hopeful he can land an agreement with state and territory leaders to intervene in the energy market and contain rising power prices. The Commonwealth appears to have convinced New South Wales to put price caps on coal and gas, but Queensland may be another challenge. There are warnings that even if a deal can be worked out, power prices will stay high. They just won't as soar to the levels otherwise feared. Tom Lowry reports from Parliament House. After weeks of negotiations, it looks like the Commonwealth is edging closer to a deal with the states for price caps on coal and gas. It's a reasonably straightforward plan. Cap the prices of two of the biggest inputs to the energy grid and take the pressure off customers' power bills. The challenge has been getting the country's two biggest coal-producing states on board, New South Wales and Queensland. Speaking to the ABC last night, New South Wales Energy Minister and Treasurer Matt Keane said a deal isn't far off. We're pretty close to an an agreement. Uh, I'm hoping there'll be an announcement tomorrow between Premier Perrottet and Prime Minister Albanese. Both states stand to lose revenue through lower mining royalties. Matt Keane says the New South Wales government is happy to go without compensation but wants the Commonwealth to help elsewhere. If we go down the price cap path, what we want to ensure is that the Commonwealth provides financial assistance to families and businesses that will be impacted by it. Queensland's position is less clear, but it's expressed concerns about lost royalties and dividends from its state-owned generators. Ian McFarlane, the former Coalition Minister and now head of the Queensland Resources Council, says a cap on coal won't achieve what's being promised. In terms of Queensland... The power stations are operating on on mind-mouth basis and capping the price of coal will have no effect on the price of electricity. If you're unfamiliar with the jargon, a mind-mouth operation means a power plant is right beside a coal mine. Mr McFarlane says those plants simply aren't exposed to fluctuating prices, so capping prices won't do anything. The coal is bought on a, on a very long-term contract at prices usually sub $100 and and in fact in some cases lower than $60 a tonne and therefore haven't been affected by the international increases in coal prices. That's the case for a lot of coal-fired power plants. But Tristan Edis, an analyst from Progressive Advisory Group Green Energy Markets, says that doesn't mean a price cap won't work. Most coal generators do have their, their coal supplies contracted, but they aren't the ones that typically set the the market clearing price. He says the market price tends to be set by generators that are exposed to international prices, particularly Gladstone and Araring, which are close to coal ports. So by lowering the cost for, say, Araring or Gladstone, it then forces the price down for all the other coal generators that may have far lower costs of coal. If a deal can be hammered out in National Cabinet today and the big coal-producing states can be brought on board, Tristan Edis says it should help contain power prices. But they'll still be high. We're still going to see very expensive gas and expensive coal relative to what we're historically used to, but it's going to be a lot less painful than what would unfold if we didn't have the price caps. Tristan Edis from Green Energy Markets ending that report from Tom Lowry. 
Why is today's energy meeting important? Because some families are sleeping in swags in their homes to avoid turning on the heating, and some are skipping meals and using the money to pay for higher power bills instead. The Australian Council of Social Service says the Premier's territory leaders and the Prime Minister must deliver support for families who can least afford soaring power costs, warning that a rising number of Australians are facing energy poverty and debt. John Daly reports. So how do you like sleeping in the swag? Malika and her six-year-old daughter have been sleeping in a swag on the lounge room floor to stay warm at night. We've been sleeping in a swag, me and my daughter, for the most part of this year. When it came to winter, we just weren't coping whatsoever. Like, it's that cold in this house. The 26-year-old single mum fled domestic violence and now lives in social housing in Lake Macquarie, New South Wales, and gets by on single-parent payments. Her government-provided house has little insulation and certainly no solar panels, leaving her with tough decisions. Face the elements or deal with unaffordable electricity bills. That's been a consistent struggle ever since I moved out on my own from DV. It's just like nothing is ever on without it needing to be most of the nights. I try to use candles and that also helps with the warmth. (laughs) Found me little life hacks to get around it and stuff like that. It's not a comfortable way to live, that's for sure. <laughs> Life hacks aside, she can't help but despair at her circumstances. Oh, I hate this house and I hate living here. And I like to be honest, I hate living in Australia <laughs> because it seems to be a countrywide thing and it's never going to get better. So, A recent report from the Australian Energy Regulator found the number of households in energy debt of more than $2,500 has increased by 39% throughout the year. St Vincent de Paul Society Policy and Research Manager Gavin Dufty says stories of energy bill-related poverty are becoming more common. I did some work the other day to help assisting somebody, an age pensioner, who was foregoing prescription medication because they had to pay their energy bills, put food on the table and their rent. They were in a rental property. People without children will make decisions about getting disconnected So they'll they'll put food on the table, they'll eat, and then they'll sit in the dark. National Cabinet is considering capping coal and gas prices to lower electricity bills, which are predicted to rise 56% in the next two years. Australian Council of Social Service Chief Executive Cassandra Goldie says there needs to be energy efficiency measures targeted at low-income households. We need a commitment to roll out large-scale energy efficiency and solar retrofits for low-income households have been completely left behind when it comes to accessing those technologies and we also need minimum energy efficiency standards for those rental properties so that people are reducing their energy use. Malika hopes some help comes out of today's National Cabinet meeting. I just have my fingers and toes crossed that they're actually going to do something to help and not harm. Lake Macquarie social housing resident Malika ending that report by John Daly. Small business owners know this all too well. With the unemployment rate so low, it's hard to find enough staff. And right now it's giving workers the opportunity to shop around for jobs that pay well and for better working conditions. The number of people switching jobs has hit levels not seen in more than a decade. The resources sector is snapping up many of them because it's paying more. Tim Wong-Si prepared this report. Jasmine Clark is firing up the coffee machine at a local cafe in Albany on WA's south coast, where she works as a barista. But today is the last time she'll be serving up the hot drinks. 
So I'm quitting my job here. Today's my last shift and I'm doing utility care up in the mines near Mount Holland. The mine site that'll be Jasmine's new workplace is five hours east of Perth. She'll be working in hospitality, preparing and serving meals and maintaining worker accommodation. And there's one big draw card. If I'm going to be honest, the pay. <laughs> it's, it's very good pay for what you do. The resources sector has long been a popular employer, thanks to its willingness to pay higher wages. But Rachel Jones, the WA director for employment agency Collar Group, says the sector's been boosting its recruitment efforts over the past 12 months. Clients uh, are really understanding that they need to future-proof their business. Even more so now, if you think about the where we've just come from coming out of COVID and all the borders were closed. Um, it's really highlighted the impact of the businesses with less qualified people and experienced people. And there are plenty of jobs to fill. According to the Bureau of Statistics, job vacancies in mining jumped 62% in August this year compared with February 2020. Alison Jones is a professor of economics at the University of Western Australia, and she says these jobs are attractive to workers who want to switch industries. For example, if I take childcare workers, they're not necessarily being able to demand higher wages where they are, but what they can actually do then is move to another employer where perhaps they might get better terms and conditions of employment. But what we are also seeing with the mining sector, again, because it does have that capacity to pay, that it is going to suck out labour from groups. And workers are moving around. The Bureau of Statistics says 9.5% of people changed jobs in the 12 months to February of this year, the highest annual job mobility rate since 2012. Recruiter Rachel Jones says mining companies are targeting young workers. They're committed, they're loyal and they want to learn and develop. Companies are really focused on making sure that they've got the right programs in place, the right training in there, the right buddying scenario as well. It's the kind of support Jasmine Clark might need as she begins her new FIFO lifestyle, which she admits is a huge change. To be honest, I'm so nervous. It is really nerve-wracking, especially that I've never done this, something like this before. I've never been away from home for more than a week, but I'm... I'm getting there. It's very nerve-wracking, I'd say so. Former barista Jasmine Clark ending that report by Tim Wong C. U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner has been freed from a penal colony in Russia and exchanged in a prisoner swap with a notorious Russian arms dealer known as the Merchant of Death. As North America correspondent Carrington Clark reports, the United States had been trying to secure the release of two Americans for the Russian. Standing in the White House and flanked by the US President and Vice President, Sherelle Greiner tried to keep her emotions in check. So over the last nine months, you all have been um, so privy to one of the darkest moments of my life. And so today I'm just standing here um, overwhelmed with emotions, but... The most important emotion that I have right now is just sincere gratitude um, for President Biden and his entire administration. She's thankful that the American government has finally been able to release her wife, WNBA All-Star and double Olympic gold medalist Brittany Griner, from Russian custody. Griner had been arrested back in February after arriving in Russia to play basketball, carrying cartridges of cannabis oil. She said she'd inadvertently packed them, but a Russian court sentenced her to nine years imprisonment. President Biden says Brittany should never have been jailed. After months of being unjustly detained in Russia, held under intolerable circumstances, 
Brittany will soon be back in the arms of her loved ones, and, uh, and she should have been there all along. This is a day we've worked toward for a long time. We never stopped pushing for her release. In a game of high-stake diplomatic chess, to get Brittany Griner freed, the United States had to give up its own high-profile prisoner, Victor Boot, an arms dealer who was halfway through a 25-year prison sentence. He'd earned the nickname the Merchant of Death as he evaded capture for years. Boot's bloody exploits inspire the 2005 film Lord of War, starring Nicolas Cage. The US had been trying to get a two-for-one swap for Boot, Former Marine Paul Whelan is also in Russian captivity, but it appears Russia wasn't willing. George Washington University legal expert Paul Schiff-Berman says the Biden administration should still be applauded for what they got. With these sorts of prisoner swaps and diplomatic relationships and hostage negotiations and so forth, the perfect is always the enemy of the good. You never get a perfect deal. You always get less than you wanted. Um, But sometimes you have to grab what you can when you can get it and hope that the momentum that is created and the relationships and trust that is created uh, because of this first success will lead to other successes. The prisoner swap took place in the UAE. President Biden promises Brittany Griner will be back on American soil soon, but Paul Whelan's family is begging the president to not forget him. They're hoping Professor Berman is right and success begets success. But there are concerns the US has played its biggest and most powerful piece for Griner and there's little left to negotiate with. This is Carrington Clark in Washington reporting for AM. In Australia, Myanmar and around Asia, young people have been chanting, stop executing our friends, and they've been writing that message on the palms of their hands as well. It's part of a protest against Myanmar's military junta, which has imposed death sentences on seven university students. The students were accused of killing a former military officer and convicted in a closed court. Activists are now trying to stop the executions. With more, here's Southeast Asia correspondent Mazoe Ford. Speaking out against the military regime in Myanmar can be dangerous and even deadly. But for Minhan Tet, it's a risk he says he has to take. He's president of the Dagon University Student Union. And since seven fellow students were given death sentences last week, he's been vocal in leading a social media campaign, hashtag stop executing our friends, in a bid to save them from the gallows. He told AM through a translator, Some of them are my close friends. So if those death sentences and executions are conducted, I think it'll make me very regretful because I couldn't do anything for them. They're just kids. Now they're being handed a death sentence. More than 130 people have been sentenced to death in Myanmar since last year's coup. In July, four political prisoners were hanged for aiding terror acts. The students were convicted in a closed court for murdering a former military colonel outside a bank where he worked. Burmese activists in Melbourne and Sydney have been protesting this week against the planned executions. Nui U has been among them. The military use the death penalty as a tool or um, just like a, a weapon to make their power stronger and um, cause great fear to, uh, to the young people who are defending the democracy. The junta says Myanmar's courts are independent and those arrested receive due process. We can never trust their trials and it will never be free and fair. It will never be transparent. And all the, they got orders from the junta and they do it 
according to the junta's orders. Burmese democracy activist Tinza Shunleyi says the death penalty is a desperate move in the face of unrelenting resistance. The junta remain in power, but they're not in control. Mani Mong from Human Rights Watch says if the military thinks the threat of capital punishment will scare opponents, it may find it galvanises them instead. People will become very angry because these youths, they're so young, they're just university students who've decided to take up arms to basically fight against um, a military that is persecuting them. Rights groups are again calling for a global arms embargo on Myanmar and targeted sanctions on the generals. The Australian government told AM it's deeply concerned by reports of the death sentences and opposes the death penalty in all circumstances. It says sanctions remain under active consideration. Mizoe Ford. While the AFLW has just wrapped up its full, first fully expanded season with all 18 clubs, a branch of the women's game in the United States is gaining popularity. Hundreds of American players are now turning to the Australian code, but agents say there's no investment to help talented US exports pursue a career in the sport. Brittany Klein reports from Washington. No, run on it, run on. Oh. All right, Rance. With the Washington Monument as their backdrop, these women might be 16,000 kilometres from the MCG, but they're training for a sport born and bred in Victoria. AFL teams in the United States have even adopted similar branding to Australian clubs, although here in the nation's capital, Claire Conley's team, the DC Eagles, hail from the east, not west coast. Right here, right here. I've moved around the U.S. a lot, and everywhere I've been, I've been able to find a USAFL team, and they've become my new family, my new home. On the hands, on the hands. Her current club is one of 17 across the United States that has a developing women's side. It's also where Megan Sullivan got her start before moving to the Gold Coast and signing up to play AFL at a state level. Coming here, it was really hard to get confidence. I kind of played every position and wherever the club needed me, but... It was really hard to cement where I felt comfortable, especially with learning all the rules. And obviously the um, competition is such a higher level. That's why it was big news when the first American export was signed to the AFLW in 2019. Sounds good, Olivia. Thank you. An Arizona woman making history. She is the first American female to ever sign a pro contract to play professional Australian rules football. Essendon's Danielle Marshall remains the only American player to make the leap from the US AFL. There's no scholarships, there's no pathways really. It was basically just like, hey, I'm going to take a gamble on this. I'm going to buy my own plane tickets, find my own place to stay, find my own local club to play with. I think the AFL missed the boat. Player agent Jason Hill says the league should have invested in international pathways when the women's game was in its infancy. The talent we see now on the park week in, week out in the AFLW is at such a high level that to see someone come from what is a community league anywhere in the world now would be a, a massive step up. There were 36 international imports in the AFLW this year. More than half were Irish. That's because clubs have much more success in signing former Gaelic football players who have transferable skills. In the US, Claire Conley says it's still a struggle to sort and Aussie rules football or even goals for training. We have big metal rods that they just like sort of hammer into the ground <laughs> and it's PVC pipes. But with more resources, even exchange programs, she's confident the American brand of AFL could grow. Yours, 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 take it. Yes, Steph. 
Brittany Klein reporting, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sarah Elaine. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. This week, a climate change protester was jailed for 15 months after she disrupted traffic on the Sydney Harbour Bridge earlier this year. It's outraged human rights groups and the United Nations. Today, we discuss whether these kinds of protests are effective and if stricter laws will really discourage them. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.